Good morning. How's everybody doing? If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, you can scan the QR code. You can use your hard copy. We've got ushers that will come down the aisles. If you need one, you want to borrow one, slip a hand up. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. We're glad that you are here in person, worshiping with us and those joining us online and those in traditions and in kindred, uh, different places, one church, worshiping the same God. I'm starting a new series today called Seven. And it's based on the letters written to seven different churches in Revelations chapter two and three. The letters have been interpreted a couple different ways, and if you've studied uh, these letters at all, maybe you're familiar with this, but a couple different ways that they've been interpreted. One is that the letters were written specifically to a specific church for a specific time, for a specific reason, and only to that church, nothing more, nothing less. Another interpretation is that these letters were written to specific churches, but they're prophetic in the sense that they're, they're seasonal or they're a span of time. And so you would be able to look at these churches and uh, through prophecy, you'd be able to say, oh, uh, uh, based on what I see happening around us today, we're probably in church four or we're in church five. And so they're, they're progressive in, in that sense. And I would say while both uh, interpretations are possible, I wanna look at these seven letters through a lens of what we know to be true. They are real letters to real churches and all of them have messages, I think, that are applicable for the gathered church and for us as individuals. And I think that the message is clear. They're timeless. Rome and surrounding territories, because uh, they were growing increasingly hostile towards Jesus' followers, after his death, according to tradition, every disciple except one was martyred because of their faith, which means they were killed simply because of their faith in Christ. But this other disciple's fate wasn't much better. John, who had been an overseer of these seven churches that we're looking at, was banished from society by the Romans to this really itty bitty tiny island called Patmos, to reduce his potential influence. It's like, we're gonna put you out here in the middle of an island so you can no longer influence people regarding Christ. During his exile, God spoke to him in this vision. And that's what the book of Revelation is. In the vision, John learned of, of these distant future events. And he was also giving the seven messages that are written to these seven churches in Asia Minor. The letters are laced with encouragement, as you'll see, as well as correction. And each, each of the letters offers a promise. And the promise is this, to him who overcomes. So in the verb form, that means he who wins or prevails in the face of obstacles. 17 of the 28 times that it's mentioned, that word, overcome, in the New Testament, 17 are in Revelation. So to this very day, the message in each of the letters that we're gonna look at identify the kinds of struggles that Christians face and they teach us, they will equip us how to overcome. In Revelation 1, we're introduced to the seven churches as lampstands, that's what he refers to them as, whose light radiates 
um, relates to Jesus who, who came as the light of the world. So he's saying there's these seven lampstands, one uh, represents each of the seven churches, and they radiate this light uh, representing Christ who came into a dark world. We also are called to be the light of the world in the Gospel of John. We do not create the light, we simply reflect the light that already exists, and his name is Jesus. Letter number one. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. Verse one, and the point is this, listen closely. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So that's the beginning of the letter. Ephesus was located at a major uh, harbor on the Aegean Sea and was known as a as his chief seaport. It, it was a church founded by Paul and was known as the most prominent church in Asia Minor in its heyday. It was a well-known church. The city itself, Ephesus, housed one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a temple, Artemis, which was a, a mother goddess. And this, this structure, I want you to get your mind around, this structure was 425 feet tall. And you're like, well, how tall is that? Is that about where our ceiling is? No, this is one and a half football field length height of this structure. The name Ephesus means maiden of choice or desirable. The pride ran thick through Ephesus. It had a population of about 250 to 300,000 people. So it wasn't a Chicago or New York City, but it also wasn't Mayberry. In fact, maybe those numbers sound familiar to you because it's about the size of Fargo, Moorhead, West Fargo, 250 to 300,000 people. So you can kind of get your mind around the size of this city that had so much pride. It was made up of large public buildings and squares and filled with large, luxurious homes, private homes built to impress all of the visitors that would come to Ephesus. They had this theater that held 25,000 people, this outdoor amphitheater, and it was known that the acoustics were so good that somebody could stand on the stage and speak in a normal voice and all 25,000 people could hear him clearly. I'm gonna try it in here. This is an amazing facility we have, isn't it? This auditorium seats about 1,200 people. They had 25,000 people, and a person could talk like that, and every person. So you get in the picture of this, this city. It's, it's an amazing place. There's no doubt that it was this incredible place. Certainly the people were proud to live there. And in fact, if somebody said, I, I'm from Ephesus, there would be this instant respect. By the end of the first century, the Ephesus church was probably the largest and most influential church in the world. Their attendance and budget had to be quite impressive. As I read through, um, Revelation two and three, um, as I've been reading through it, I, I wanted to come up with a word for each church that probably is a modern day word that would represent that particular church. And the word that I came up with for Ephesus is the word comfortable. The Ephesian church had started off on the right foot, but something went drastically wrong. 
It's, it started with a great desire to see God work. They no doubt wanted to witness to their community. They wanted to, they wanted to share Christ and see people come to Christ. They, they believed in the truth. They started by keeping no glory for themselves and they, and they passed all glory to their heavenly father. They were grounded in God's word. They loved to worship in spirit and in truth. They loved God with all of their heart, their soul and their mind. John's letter to the church in Revelation that we're looking at today is what we might call an assessment of their 40 years of existence. What started as a great church with all of the right motives had become a church that was now comfortable. Each of the seven letters written to the seven churches begins with a different description of Jesus. In this first letter, Jesus is described as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands. Again, the seven lampstands are the churches, but he's holding these seven stars in his right hand. The way in which Jesus is described in each of the different churches is important for us to understand if we're truly to grasp the meaning and the message that is given to that particular church and if we're able to apply it personally. The seven stars represented seven messengers, one for each of the churches. And you might remember in the very beginning, it says to the angel of, and the word angel there isn't necessarily in reference to an angelic being from heaven. It's speaking of a physical messenger. The church of Ephesus had no doubt been under some great man-made leadership. Paul, Timothy, John, all well-known names. However, Jesus was saying through his letter, they are not to be worshiped, I am. And he was drawing attention through this letter back to himself. At a lunch meeting this past week, um, us pastors went out and one of the pastors jokingly said, they said, Andy, if you would just do this and this, um, you could go viral and our church could go viral. And my response was, I have absolutely no desire to go viral. We can, we can all listen to and we can read the stories of celebrities, of athletes, and even pastors who, who were once known by just a few and then they became known by the masses. And many of them speak of the incredible pressure and the massive weight of expectations. And of course the internet and social media has added to that. And I just said, oh no, thank you. Again, the church of Ephesus was a popular and very influential church. It was thriving and people on the outside looking in, it seemed to have everything headed in the right direction. At my last church, there was a man after the service that came up to me. And in my last church, because it was a church plant, as we were growing, we had name tags that you'd pick up every Sunday morning, you'd put it on. And so it was easy to see people's names or, or try to remember people's names. And so when you would shake their hand, you'd kind of glance down at their name tag. And I was trying to do that with this gentleman. I was trying to see, he was a visitor, so it was handwritten. And I was trying to see what his last name was. He's like, oh, you probably recognize my last name. And, and I was, right away I was thinking, no, actually don't. But my, he said, my brother went to Trinity College. My brother went to Trinity Seminary. My brother is a famous TV pastor. You've probably heard of him. And if I shared the conversation that was happening in my head, I might've said something like this. Honestly, I've never heard of your brother, nor have I ever seen him on TV. Thank you for coming today. I hope to see you next year at Visitor's Day. 
But instead, I probably said something like this. Thanks for being here, it's nice to meet you. But this guy was so arrogant, so full of pride. It's a little bit of what was happening here in this church. Secondly, be humble, verse two and three. He starts on, he says this. Jesus says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and, and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, I see you. I've taken note of your hard work and your refusal to quit. I know you can't stomach evil and that you weed out false teachers and, and pretenders. I know you're persistent and courageous and that you never wear out. What a report card, right? <clears throat> Wouldn't you like to get that report card? I'd love to get that report card. Listen as I read Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30 some 40 years earlier when the church first started. This is what it says. I know that after I leave, savage, this is Paul planting the church, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So there was this warning. That was in 57 AD, and now we're talking about in 98 AD, we're reading the words written to them in this letter. You've worked so hard. So it's 40 years later, and still you've persevered. You, you've endured hardships. They did it. They did it. Paul warned them of what they needed to do, and they pulled through. The church... It was a serving church, busy doing the Lord's work. It was a sacrificing church. The word labor means to toil, to exhaustion. They paid the price to worship God. They stood strong in the face of doctrine. They didn't allow the world's views and tolerance to come inside of the church. They were under a tremendous amount of pressure to water down the word, to compromise their faith to offer a casual Christianity to the people in hopes that they might attract even more people. Yet they held strong. They were steadfast and patient, which carries this meaning of endurance under trial. They kept going. After 40 years, the Lord still had many good things to say about them. Let's personalize it for just a second. It might sound like this, as followers of Christ, Let's persevere. Let's stand strong under pressure. Let's resist becoming comfortable. Let's not give in to uh, casual Christianity. Let's not treat the word of God like a buffet, picking and choosing the things that we wanna hear or the things that we can stomach that, that, that don't do anything to us. The things that we like. Let's taste and chew and swallow the entire book because some of it will sit well with us and some of it will churn our stomach for good reason because it's eating away at the flesh, our sin nature. It ought to. Then he continued as though to say, don't let your heads get too big just yet. Yes, there are many things you're still doing well as a church and have done so well 
However, there's this one little thing, this one thing that I hold against you. Verse four, point number three, check yourself. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Let that sink in for just a second. All of these wonderful things, this great report card, this amazing church. And then he says, but hold on a second. You've forsaken your first love. They had remitted or, or the ideas walked away from or let down their early love, meaning their love for God, their love for Christ. That is, it is much less evident than it once was. With all of the things that they were still doing so well, they didn't retain their strong affection for God. How is that possible? How can they have all of these wonderful things? And yet he says, you, you walked away from your first love. They were once known for their love for Christ. They had replaced their unconditional love for God with lifeless orthodoxy, routine practice, going through the motions, all of which allow people to become comfortable. What would some check engine lights be that might indicate to us to me, or us as a church, that we are straying or distancing ourselves from our first love. You see, you, 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 maybe you're sitting here or you're listening to me right now or you're watching online and you're thinking, well, I wouldn't be here if I didn't love God or if I wasn't passionately in love with the Lord. Well, we know that's not true because we just read 40 years of a great report card of people that were faithful and going through the motions and doing everything religiously, but their heart had changed. So what are some engine lights for us that maybe would be indicators <clears throat> that we might ask, hmm, we stopped talking about God. We lack gratitude and take people and God for granted. Our heart becomes hard. We have no passion for God. We stop running to God with sin. So in other words, there's no repentance. We begin to rely more on self and less on God. We, our prayer life is not good. We're apathetic, more concerned about making our name great instead of making the Lord's name great. We stop learning and growing. We, we blame others for, for the lack of spiritual motivation in our own life. Only care about what we wanna care about. When being right is more important than being righteous. 
That's just a few of maybe you can think of them as warning lights on the dashboard that are saying, pay attention. These are some indicators. If we're to be honest, I think we would all agree that we have different seasons spiritually. Seasons when we put a smile on our face and pretend like everything is okay. Everything's great. Seasons when we are far from God and we feel lost and alone. Seasons when the pleasure of sin is more attractive than turning from it. Seasons when we're apathetic and just don't care. Seasons when we're confused because God didn't do what we wanted him to do or that we needed him to do. For the unbeliever who is here or who's joining us online, there's, there's hope for you. John 3, 16 through 18 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And it goes on, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Look, if you're here and you don't know Jesus and you, like even those warning lights, you're like, well, I don't have those warning lights. I don't even know if I know Jesus. I don't even know what that even means. There is hope for you. Through the cross, through Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and died on the cross for you. And if you don't know that hope or you have questions about that, please find me, find a pastor, find an elder and just say, tell me more about that hope. Because I'm lost. I'm hurting. God seems so far off, whatever it might be. For the believer, because you are saved and because you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God, Here's the good news. He is relentless in stirring, in calling, in inviting you back. If you are his child, he will move mountains to find you and bring you home. When I find myself in one of those seasons, I'm reminded of a couple verses in Galatians 5 seven and eight, this is what it says. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. And those two verses, man, they, every time I even just read those, I think that's a really good question. I was moving along in my relationship with God and then I find myself in one of those seasons that I just mentioned and sometimes, sometimes it's like one day to the next it feels like and other times it feels like it's, it's a slow fade. Verses five through seven, he gives this challenge to turn back. This is what it says. Consider how far you have fallen. Kind of, he's kind of gripping their heart because he set them up with all this great stuff and he said, but you don't even love me anymore. You've moved away from that. And he's saying, hey, consider how far, far you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. 
If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus is establishing in this first letter kind of a pattern that we'll see in all of the letters. He introduces himself. He offers all these words of encouragement and praise and then words of challenge and then words of counsel. Judging by Christ's words of counsel, what had gotten in their way was this unwillingness because of their pride to repent and return to their first love. They were more willing to become a church that, that lacked in their love for God than to be a church that thrived out of their love for God. So their pursuit of popularity and their desire to be comfortable had taken precedence over their, their pursuit of a love relationship with God. They would rather be impressive than be impressed upon. They would rather be casual than committed in their relationship with God. That is why God shared these words. He says this, either you return to me or I'll remove your lampstand. Hmm. Let me tell you what the result was. By the sixth century AD, Ephesus was deserted. The harbor, which was its livelihood, had begun to fill in with silt. Their lampstand was removed. Apparently, God's counsel to them was, was, was not serious enough. They didn't take it seriously enough. Apparently, they, they liked who they were and the, they liked the direction that they were going. Apparently, they refused to return to their first love. And, and so, like Ephesus, when we become comfortable in our own sin, we can easily lose sight of the forgiveness that, that God offers. The thrill of being made pure is gone. The pursuit of God is replaced with the pursuit of popularity and power and prestige, whether for the church, whether for us individual, whether for us as a country. He says, listen to what I'm saying. A good and reflective question for us individually and as a church is this. Do I, do we exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit? It is the only true test. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And we think, yeah, we can fake all of those. But someone knows when they're genuine. And we know that they're genuine because we know that the Lord is working in us and the Holy Spirit is transforming us. Think of it like this. If you were put on the stand in a courtroom to be convicted of having a deep and growing relationship with God, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The cross tells us that Jesus pled guilty of the crime that he was being accused of. Oh, you say you're the son of God? Yes. So him dragging his cross, 
being placed upon the cross was him saying, I'm guilty of what you're charging me of. Look ahead, second part of verse seven. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus says in verse seven, if you listen to me, I have a promise for you. Maybe you remember back to the the series we did um, called The End or even in the series Heaven. In the Garden of Eden, there, there were two trees. There was a tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. <clears throat> Adam and Eve were instructed that eating from the tree of life would bring eternal life with God, but eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, there'd be this realization. Their eyes would be open to good and evil. Well, we know the story, right? They disobeyed and ate from the tree of knowledge and therefore were casted from the garden and refused the tree of life. So, so God comes back in his promise and he says this, God's promise here in verse seven is this, one day evilness will come to an end and all believers will be ushered into paradise. It is there that all believers will eat of the tree of life and live forever in the presence of God. May God do whatever is necessary to bring you, to bring me, to bring our church, to bring our nation back to him anytime when we stray or we're wandering away. I wanna leave you with one thing and then I have something really special for you. Here's the one thing. Return to your first love. God. At this time, I want to invite my friend up on stage, uh, Kay Kiefer. And Kay, I'll join you here in just a second, but I want to share a little bit um, about Kay and a conference that she helped start, uh, led, spearheaded this past Friday. And it was called Reproductive Choice Conference. And I will tell you that um, the interview that I'm gonna do here in just a second is a little bit sensitive. So if, it's gonna be PG, but if you have children in the room, I just wanna give you a heads up. Um, I think that that's, that's fair. But she brought together um, experts in the field of medicine, mental health, and research to educate participants about the physical, the emotional, and the spiritual impacts of abortion on women and gave them the resources that they needed in order to minister to others. Hello. Hello. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Really, really appreciate it. I know this is a tough topic and it's a sensitive topic and Mm -hmm. so thanks for being up here. Yep, absolutely. You had a life-changing event that took place in 1996 in Minneapolis. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, So um, church had always been a part of my life. Um, But having a relationship with Christ was not a message I ever heard in the churches that my family attended. Excuse me. Uh, Russ and I, my husband and I, were living in the Minneapolis area with our three young children in 1996 when the Billy Graham crusade came to town. Now, our babysitter at that time was a young Christian woman named Dawn, and she had introduced my girls to Amy Grant, and my girls loved Amy Grant. <clears throat> and who was going to come and be part of the Billy Graham crusade that 
that time, but Amy Grant. Right. So Don and I packed up the girls and we took them down to the Metrodome to the uh, Billy Graham crusade. And understand, in my mind at that point, Billy Graham was like literally just like one step below God. You know, so when he was talking about forgiveness and salvation and all of those things, I thought, well, that's great for him, but surely he's never done anything as bad as I've done. But then Franklin Graham got up and started to speak. And as he spoke, it was one of those moments, and I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this, but it was one of those moments where it felt like the thousands of people around me were not there and that he was speaking directly to me. Mm. And I listened as he talked about his rebellion and how far from God he had strayed. And I thought, well, maybe there is hope for me. Now, it was such a crush of people in there that day that um, I think if I hadn't had my little girls with me that I would have responded to the altar call. But it, it, was, it was just such a crush of people. So instead, I bought his book, and I absolutely devoured it. Uh, while reading that book, I prayed to receive Christ, mm. and I entered into a relationship with him. A new chapter in my life began, and I had hope, and I, I felt the love of God. Mm. That's really awesome. So you knew that God loved you, and you knew that you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, um, and that, that's awesome. But like the Ephesian church, um, you took your faith seriously, and you worked really hard in order to face head-on any challenges or trials that, that maybe came your way. But there was a part of your life that you kept hidden, and something cut in on you, and it created this distance between you and God. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Um, first of all, one thing I did not do when I prayed that prayer was to tell another Christian. Mm. And that's something I so appreciate whenever you talk about receiving Christ, that you encourage people, make sure you tell someone. Mm. And it's so important because new Christians need support and encouragement and instruction from mature Christians. And I'll tell you, I had a lot of messed up ideas about who God was and how he operates. I could have really benefited from some of that instruction. Um, it eventually came, but I, I also, I had this idea of God as this angry, wrathful being mm. up there in the sky somewhere, just waiting for the perfect moment to pay me back for my sins. And um, I had done something I feared was the unforgivable sin. When I was 19, I had an abortion. And for 10 years after receiving Christ, I continued to keep my abortion a secret because I so feared rejection and judgment. I feared that from um, my pastors, from um, people in church, and I couldn't even, I didn't even talk to God about it. Like we can hide things from God, but you know, I kind of played that game for a while. And very honestly, I never heard it talked about in church. Um, but then God intervened, as he so often does, because he wasn't content to leave me where mm. I was. He, um, as you said just in your message, he was relentless mm. in his pursuit of me and getting me to a new place. He used a, uh, the, a Christian counselor um, to set me straight or to set me on the right path. And I'll tell you, I was so irritated with this lady. She just kept picking at this abortion, and I kept saying to her, no, that's not why I'm here, that's not why I'm here. I'm fine, I'm fine. And one day she sat back and she crossed her arms and she looked straight at me. And she said, Kay, I think the power that Satan has over you with this abortion is the fact that it's a secret. 
And I can tell you, I have not had many burning bush moments in my life, but that was one. That was a moment where I knew with every single fiber of my being that that was God speaking through that woman to me. And um, her words that day were the key that eventually helped me unlock the self-made prison of fear, guilt, and shame and regret that I had been living in, but they scared me to death because I knew that if I no longer kept my secret, I would have to first tell those people who meant so much to me, my parents, my children, our small group who had become our family. And it was terrifying, but I knew that that was what God was telling me to do. So I did. I told those people and the world did not stop spinning on its axis. No one left me or rejected me or told me that they didn't want me in their lives. And through that process, I discovered that God is trustworthy. He is who he says he is. He is good and he is trusted. He's not going to lead us to something that is going to destroy us. He may lead us through things that are difficult, but he really does have a plan and a purpose for our lives. Mm. That's powerful, thank you. You had a personal relationship with Jesus. You had surrendered your life to him, again, through grace alone, through faith alone, but you didn't fully understand that the blood of Christ um, would cover or forgive your abortion. Something you kept secret for so long, and now you're sharing more openly. How have you gotten to to that place? I really struggled um, with my answer to this question, Um, but very simply, it was God who brought me to this place um, through obedience to that terrifying thing he was asking me to do. Now, obedience is not a popular thing in our culture at all. We're surrounded every day by all of these messages that are absolutely antithetical to the Bible. Um, You know, it's uh, trust your heart, follow your heart. But in Jeremiah, we read, the heart is deceitful. Mm. Um, We hear um, we're the masters of our own destiny. We get to decide who we're going to be and what we're going to do. But the word of God says that God has a plan and purpose for our lives. We're encouraged to do whatever makes us feel good or happy. Um, But God tells us to be holy as he is holy. And these messages all roll off our tongues and embed themselves in our minds. And um, they are lies, which can Mm. cause us to stray from God and doubt him. My obedience to God in this instance led me through some painful and hard things, but into freedom and the heart knowledge that he can be trusted. Um, Just a quick story. Sometimes when I speak, as I begin, um, and I'm introducing myself to the audience, I'll have a picture projected on the screen of me and my grandchildren. And I let everybody ooh and ah because they are the most beautiful grandchildren there are. Um, Well, we could debate that. We're going to have six. I think there are a few (laughs) up on you. Um, Anyway, then I go into whatever it is that I'm there to talk about. And in the end, I circle back around to that picture, and I remind them of those beautiful children. And I tell them that those grandbabies are growing up and someday they're going to learn about the horrific um, reality of abortion. And then they're going to learn that their grandma did that. And very likely one of them or two of them or maybe all six of them are going to come to me and they're going to say in horror and disbelief, Nana, did you really 
do that. And I'm going to tell you what, that's going to hurt. Mm -hmm. That's going to be really painful. But I am going to be able to turn around then and tell them the very good news that there is not one thing that they can do that will make God stop loving them. There's not one thing that they can do that is outside of the work that Christ did on the cross. Mm. God will forgive our sins, but sin leaves a mark. Mm. He forgives our sins, but it doesn't mean that he erases history. Mm. Um, the bottom line is that I did make that choice. Mm. Um, but God has forgiven me. And just as we sang on Easter Sunday, I loved this, this these words. Um, hell lost another one. I am free. Mm. It's the idea that we can't outrun the grace of God, right? It's so amazing. And Paul says, right, keep on sinning that grace may abound? No, <laughs> right. right? It's both. Yeah. Um, getting to know your story a little bit and getting to know you, I know that you are willing to talk with other folks who have questions or who want to talk. Um, and I know that you're willing to do that with folks that are here or people that are listening. And I don't know if we got the slide with her email address or not, um, but if you have a desire to, to speak with Kay, I'm gonna give you her email address. Um, and maybe just write it down because maybe you'd pass it on to somebody else. It, it could be helpful. It's K at we are everywhere. I love that. Dot life. K at we are everywhere. Dot life. I think that your uh, testimony and I think that your message um, is probably impacting people here at a different levels in different ways. There may be some here who have had an abortion. There may be some here who um, encouraged someone to have an abortion, maybe a parent or a grandparent or a friend, um, who continued maybe to walk in that shame or that guilt. And I think your testimony has shown that there is hope and that there is forgiveness and that the blood of Christ covers those sins. I think it's also just a great reminder for all of us that probably everyone here has something mm -hmm. that's secret or that's hidden and it's that thing that is creating that distance between them and God, between me and God, between you and God, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that, that great reminder that God is relentless and that he will move mountains and he will come and find us and he will bring us back home um, even though everything in us wants to stray because of that. What I would like to do is um, maybe just close our time in prayer, but to pray over everyone here um, in reference to that. Yeah. Father, thank you for um, Kay and thank you for her story and the boldness of her testimony. I know that she hasn't always been in that place, um, but Lord, you are using her and her story to help other people find hope in you. And Lord, it's just a great reminder. Her testimony is a great reminder of your grace, that we cannot out your grace. We can outrun your grace and that you love us and that you care for us. Lord, I pray right now for anyone in this room or who's watching online or traditions or kindred or wherever they might be, Lord, or who, somebody who goes back and watches this, Lord, I pray that that message of truth and hope would ring in their ears. And Lord, that maybe today would be the day that they would step out or make a phone call or send an email or, and just 
walk through that process of understanding and being reminded that the blood of Christ covers all sin. And through the blood of Christ, shame and guilt can be diminished and that we can have hope in you and in you alone, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness. And I pray whatever that is in our lives that's creating that distance or that awkwardness or um, Lord, that we would take a step back towards you in the right direction because the Holy Spirit is drawing us back. In Jesus' name.